This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Best bits from Friday, November the 25th. I come up, we'll hear from Justin Dargan. Justin is a global energy expert who's based at the Carnegie Endowment. Now, Justin was kind enough to join us a little bit earlier on today. Why? Oil prices fell this week, hovering around two-month lows, in fact, as the level of a proposed G7 cap on the price of Russian oil raised doubts about how much it would limit supply. So we got Justin in to crunch the numbers for us on this. We spoke uh, oil, we spoke gas and other energy sources. And from energy to property, Zan Chichinki joined us a little earlier as well. The COO of Property Monitor Dubai, bucking the world trend as sales boomed here with a near 2% monthly price rise and no immediate property price falls in prospect. Big focus on property all this week with Cityscape running right here in Dubai. Azam was kind enough to join us in the studio again to crunch the numbers, look at the what's, the where's, the why's and the how's with regards to the property market, why we are seeing these month-on-month, year-on-year increases. David Quaife, he also joined us live in studio. David is the Media General Manager of Pattern Consultancy for the retail industry here. Why retail? It's Friday, isn't it? Friday, November the 25th, otherwise known as Black Friday or White Friday in some parts of the world. In fact, that was one of the questions we put to David. Why this title for this one Friday of the year? What's the history behind it? And what are the trends we can expect to see this year? That plus... What with the World Cup going on, we had a new survey out from Gulf Talent. In fact, uh, yes, Tammy from Gulf joined us a little earlier as well. But uh, we delved into this survey because basically it's showing that what with the World Cup going on at the moment, we could well see, obviously, we'll see a spike in hospitality and food and beverage. Those are the sort of industries that will do well out of a lot of people watching football here in the region. But what businesses could not do as well. And it seems that a number of us might be looking for one way or another to watch the football, whether that is through being very straightforward with your bosses or otherwise. Our Gulf employers looking to balance their work duties with their desire to watch the World Cup. How are people going about it? A discussion we had in studio on the Business Breakfast. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Richard is off. He is, they tell us, ill. But we have some statistical evidence um, that there might be a few people calling in sick this morning. You've been speaking to a man doing the numbers, Tom. Haven't we? Just, yeah. Jobs, yes. No one's working uh, because it's the World Cup. So this latest uh, findings out from the uh, team at Gulf Talent. They've done this survey. In fact, they did it before the World Cup. So they had a little think about this one and thought, oh, yeah, um, World Cup's coming up. Uh, what, what's that going to mean? It's going to mean that people are going to watch the ge- want to watch the games. What impact is that going to have on businesses uh, and on industry as a whole? So uh, let's kick things off with uh, a few thoughts from Yasser Hatami. Uh, Yasser is the MD at Gulf Talent. He joined us a little earlier on. Uh, wanted to know, first and foremost, how they... Uh, conducted the survey just before the start of the games uh, running up to sort of first couple of days of the game 
Ames. We invited our sort of 10 million members uh, who are registered with us to for employment purposes to uh, tell us uh, if they have an interest in what, uh, how they're going to go about it, how would they reconcile and balance that with their um, sort of work duties. And about we had 7,000 people who participated in the survey. Uh, they asked them to answer that questions about their, their, their preferences. And this was all conducted online um, essentially about a week ago and analysed over the last few days. Uh, right, so we know well that the FIFA World Cup is ongoing at the moment. A lot of people will have stayed up late last night to watch Brazil because when Brazil turn up to play at a World Cup, the world sits up, or on this occasion, stays up to listen and watch. Um, be interested to know, if you've made it into work already this morning, uh, is the entire team uh, at their workstations this morning? Uh, has everyone turned up? Have people booked a long weekend this weekend, take in the Brazil game last night, uh, because that's certainly one of the findings of this survey from Gulf Talent. Uh, wanted to get a bit more of an overview from uh, Yasser about the balance. Yeah, we talk often about life-work balance. What about, of the course of the next four weeks, the balance between work and football? More than three quarters of the participants who said that they actually would like to watch at least some of the games to various degrees. 41% of the overall respondents said that they will watch at least some of the games during uh, working hours. Uh, as we know, the game starts around uh, 2 p.m. Dubai time, uh, going all the way to sort of uh, late night. So there's there's an overlap between working hours and the hours of the games. And now, how are people going about this? Uh, different methods. Some would, uh, would ask permission and they feel they would get permission to watch some of the games, especially if it's their favorite games or the national team playing. Uh, some of them said, yeah, they will they will sort of resort to secretly watching the games, maybe uh, on their computer, on their smartphones, uh, or tracking the scores, etc. We had a number of other, other uh, sort of strategies that employees mentioned they might have to resort to to watch their favorite games. Some might formally take a day off or even a few days off uh, on the days that the teams are playing. Some they said that they might leave work earlier, um, either to watch the game on that day or because they had to stay up very late the night before uh, and, you know, would, would not be in good shape to go to work. So uh, quite a wide uh, range of, uh, sort of reactions from the employees that were receiving the survey. Yeah, had to. I like the phrase there, had to stay up to watch the football because it's a, it's a need, isn't it? And it comes around every four years, the FIFA World Cup. Uh, and those were the thoughts of Yasser Hatami. We'll hear from him in full later on. He's the MD of Gulf Talent. Thanks very much, Lee, for your text messages on this one. A lot of people having their say. Uh, our big boss down here at Dubai Eye uh, and, of course, our parent company, ARN, uh, is... Uh, 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 is a wonderful individual called Mahmoud. Um, we've just had a text message from a Mahmoud this morning. Uh, so I'll be very careful about my text messages, uh, reading them out, uh, saying late night games, people attend office late or tired, uh, people watching daily afternoon games, either on phones or leave early to catch the evening ones. Mahmoud, thank you very much indeed for your text messages. <laughs> Fully agree. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Just having a look at all the roads approaching Dubai Mall. Yeah, they're busy, but I expected them to be a bit busier. What about on Mall of the Emirates? Yeah. Fairly straightforward at the moment, uh, uh, but that could get busier a little later on. Why? Well, it's that day, isn't it? 
It is Black Friday, well publicised uh, by many uh, th- for quite some time now. Uh, shoppers hoping to clinch lucrative deals on holiday gifts may get lucky during this year's Black Friday sales this season. Um, companies worried about a repeat of last year's shortages have built up rich stocks uh, of goods as well. But are the deals uh, also following suit? Well, let's find out and look at some of the trends available this Black Friday with uh, the MENA General Manager of Pattern, David Quaife, who's been kind enough to join us uh, here in studio this morning. Morning, David. Morning, Tom. Battling, me. battling the shoppers out there this morning, I'm sure, <laughs> as they were queuing outside the malls. Um, is that the case? Are, are, we seeing, are we seeing high demand this year for Black Friday? So I think there's definitely... A lot of retailers getting behind Black Friday or, or White Friday, whatever we want to call it. Um, it's a really big push. I do think there's a lot of business, especially in the online segment. Um, there is obviously, you know, traffic indicators are, are up. People are going on to purchase. Um, is it as big as before? We'll most likely be able to see after this period when we start to review the data. It's most likely looking a little bit softer uh, in, in some of the data that we've seen. Um, but again, it's very broad, right? So it's kind of very spread out now. I think previously you would have a few big players pushing this uh, as a big kind of promotion. Now everyone's doing it and every single segment. It's not even just retail now. I think everyone's kind of getting behind this Black Friday, White Friday sort of message um, to, to push as well. Can we do a bit of a, a bit of a history lesson for Black Friday? Yeah. What was it? What What was it designed for originally? So in, yeah, interestingly, so Black Friday originates from the US. So Black Friday is the Friday after Thanksgiving, uh, and typically that's when they would do their promotions in stores, a big sale. And um, the reason that there's a theory behind why it's called Black Friday, and it's the moment retailers in the US used to go into the positive and out of the red. That was it, right? Because they drive so much sales. That's where the Black Friday come from. Cyber Monday was an evolution of that, started really by Amazon. Uh, So Cyber Monday was the Monday after Thanksgiving. Same thing, but online. They've kind of molded those together, Mm. and this Black Friday has stuck. That then kind of moved over to um, the UK. Again, by Amazon. I actually worked at Amazon at the time when we launched Black Friday in the UK. It was a bit of a disaster. It was crazy. Everyone went mad. Um, (laughs) But that's kind of when it shifted over. And now Black Friday has kind of become this just big online sales event, in-store event. But really, it all kind of stems from uh, Thanksgiving, maybe like similar to Boxing Day sales in the UK, if anyone's from the UK. Um, And that's kind of how it's grown. Now, the Middle East picked this up again, really by Amazon. Uh, They came in, badged it up White Friday because Black and Friday, not very good in terms of Islamic culture. Obviously, Friday is a holy day. Black is not um, uh, the greatest colour to associate it to it. So it was White Friday, and that's how it started here. And then you've got Yellow Friday, got endorsed by, rainbow, you know, you? <laughs> every single big business has got behind it and created their own. So, yeah, it's, um, I think, really, it's just a, a, an, a, an opportunity to drive some online sales. So, so a marketing tool driven and created by the big e-commerce online platforms. Mm-hmm. But it, interesting enough, certainly from the UK, expecting to see a bigger footfall for bricks and mortar stores this yeah. year on Black Friday. So has it worked both ways? Yeah, definitely. I think I think in the here in the UA is quite interesting because a lot of the stores do get behind a lot of the online events, typically those online events, and they've worked pretty well. So I think um, you know people still want to go out to the mall. 
you might they they might want to shop online, but they still typically are visiting the mall. So I think the retailers or omni-channel retailers that have kind of got behind those events, they've been able to drive it as well, right? Landmark company that I used to work for, mm. I know that they've done really well in terms of creating a buzz around those events, but also making sure that they're getting people into their stores, not just on their online sites. What about the supply chain issues? Obviously, that's something mm-hmm. that blighted um, these events last year. Same this year or not? I think there's been massive improvements, right? So there's massive improvements. Still some some shortages, I think, that there's been a lot of catch-up for some, some brands out there. Some brands that we work with as well um, have seen some shortages. I think generally it's pretty well well placed. There is um, still price increases in terms of raw materials within some product segments. So some of the deals will be less attractive just because of those those price increases and they've had to bake them in. Um, so there has been some troubles there, but there's still a lot of excess stock in the region and that typically is the, the one that will be pushed through in these promotions. Question to you. So I remember several years ago and in recent history recent history when black friday white friday call it what you will at the mm-hmm. moment these promotions were were very much looking forward to because it, it was one day and if you weren't yeah. on it then then you were going to miss out yeah. whereas now my daughters have been talking black friday for the last five days black, or something black as November, well i saw on shake's age exactly um, that yeah. has it sort of lost a little bit of its you know immediacy yeah i think i think that's fair to say right and i think any you know in the UAE, all retail and sales and promotions, people get addicted. And next year, you have to anniversary that and you have to do more and you have to do more. And I think, you know, preponing it, bringing it bigger and extending that event um, has kind of happened, right? And I think it's now, you know, some of the businesses that are very true to it and keep it quite short and snappy and they trade at full price through the year, they have a really big bump. They're the ones that see a big increase. But otherwise, it's kind of generally... I'd say flatten that curve in terms of an increase mm. um, for the month of November. Brandy talking about earlier on, uh, obviously inflationary pressures at the moment, uh, looming recessions, global headwinds economically as well, could have an impact on sales uh, from Thanksgiving leading into Christmas over in the United States and Europe. Are we going to say mm. the same here or not? I think that I think there will be a bit of a slowdown, right? I think not as drastic, um, but I think this is this is fair to say that you know. That ripple effect, I think it will be fairly similar, a bit of a slowdown. I think in terms of what people are shopping for has most likely changed on the back of that more. It, with inflation, are some of the sales that we're seeing just effectively taking the price rises out? Yeah, I think that that's that's a fair fair comment. So I think um, some of the sales and so on, yeah, like could just be offsetting some of those so those increases. Um it really depends by segment and, and category as well. Some of them have seen bigger price increases and some have seen some some decreases. What does it mean that we're effectively globally shopping now rather than shopping mm. locally for these sales? Local retailers are competing with everyone because I can access everyone. Yeah, it's true, right? So, And that's a big problem and it's something that we see quite a lot. So in terms of that global or cross-border um, ability to shop, um, that does really highlight some issues in terms of pricing, localized pricing. So UAE or GCC pricing for, for brands. I think that's been that's been a big issue over the last even four or five years, but a lot more now, right? It's easily accessible, businesses have evolved, shipping rates are a lot quicker. Um, so yeah, companies still are challenged, you know, are challenged with that, but I think um, 
there have been some strategies put in play by some of those businesses of late. We don't need much of an excuse to shop here in the region. I can predict that the shopping mall is going to be busy today from round about 10 o'clock this morning. David, thank you very much indeed for your time thank this you. morning. David Quaife is the MENA General Manager for Patton. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. All right, property report time. Dubai is, and I quote, powering on with a 2% rise in house prices last month. That is what uh, the latest analysis from Property Monitor says. It's going to be out a little bit later today, but we've got a sneak peek and the COO, Jean Jahinki, in the studio with us this morning. Jean, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So, a 2% rise in house prices. Put that in context for us. Where are we now historically? So historic, if we look at the last recovery cycle, right, so that one that ended sort of the October 2014, that when we went up, that big ramp up, and then we went through this six-year downturn, that recovery cycle only lasted 24 months. We have only, just, you say. Only. only. Um, well, we look at that eight-year cycle, right, you'd like your upswing to be a little bit longer than, than just two years of it. We're at that same point now, right? So we're 24 months into the recovery. We, we bottomed out in November 2020. And now 24 months in. And what we were seeing in the beginning is rapid price appreciation. So we sort of went from the half a percent, 1%, 2%, 2.5%. And then we saw it start to taper off, which got me really happy because the slower prices go up, the longer the run we're going to have, the more sustainable it's likely to be. Affordability doesn't become as much of a problem. So we saw it taper off. We saw these sub 1% plus or minus month on month ones. And then we saw a couple of declines. And then two months ago, we saw a 2% bump, and now we've seen another almost 2% bump, 1.77%. You're calling this a multi-phase cycle, though. What does that mean in practice? Yeah, so the first phase is the one I just went through, right? And that was driven by villas and townhouses. And apartments were selling as well, but the major price appreciation, villa and townhouses. If we look deeper into what's driving it now, these last couple of months have been heavily weighted toward apartment price growth. So normally I'd get, if I was sitting here going, it's Villa and Townhouses again, I'd be really concerned that now it's just running away again. But the fact that it's this second phase being driven by a different property type doesn't give me that much cause for concern. How sustainable are the rises, though, that we have already seen in villas and townhouses and are now seeing in apartments? So I think villa and townhouses are starting to plateau for sure, almost across the board. Apartments, there's still some value that's left in there. So expect that to happen for probably the next six to nine months. But it will depend on how much supply comes into the market. And that's one of the next parts that we're really starting to see. There is a lot of new supply launching. Um, that's going to come in and some people that maybe haven't been able to afford or, or, or chase something that's ready are now opting for off-plan that's coming into the market. And this was a big discussion yesterday that we had um, on the show with the guys from, from Hauser um, and from Value Strat as well. Your report, though, you're cautious on the amount of off-plan launches. Yeah. I'm putting that nicely. <laughs> you are. Um, what is the end of every bull market? It's oversupply. Every market, that's where it gets to the point, there is just too much inventory. And we're starting to ramp up. So this year, we've seen about 37, 38,000 new units come to market in the off-plan segment. About 80% of that's been apartments, right? Where the most demand's been has been villa and townhouses, and we've not really been seeing that. Um, you had the spot before where Tom was with, talking with Azizi, really happy to see that they're diversifying and moving away from a lot of new apartment launches, and now bringing some villa and townhouses in. Um, it's really tough for developers to do that, because what do you need? land to do these communities. So there's only a few developers that can bring that to the market. So how long will it be sustainable? We we really have to 
keep an eagle eye on what's coming in and when, but not just now, but thinking when that hands over, what's the market going to be like? Do I want to be in a position where I've bought an apartment today at top dollar and then three years from now it's coming on with 30,000 other things in the same quarter? That's a position you might not want to be in. I mean, crystal ball time and and you've actually said and this is going to be an unfair question uh you've said at the end of your report that you are about to start formulating your predictions for the year ahead why not start now Jean? <laughs> oh she's going to leave me something for the new year um i'll give you some um i think that we're going to see developers continue with the pace of uh, we've seen now we'll probably end the year with about fifty thousand units coming to market and i don't think it's going to slow down coming into the new year i just hope they pay close attention to what product they're releasing where and when uh, price appreciation ticking on how it is now apartments and villas sort of staying in that plateau ready apartments being the most value right now to buy something um, rental rates going to keep ticking up, right? It's uh, those that can't afford to buy are forced into the rental market. So that increases demand while supply is really tight. Ultimately, it's going to push up prices on new properties. Yeah, let's talk about that that rental market. Sarah from, from Hauser made the point yesterday that, you know, we are in danger of ending up with a glut of people who've all been served their one-year eviction notices. Um, hello. At around the, uh, the same time, meaning that they're all looking obviously for, for new flats, new villas, whatever it happens to be, at around the, the same time. What are we seeing rental yields doing at the moment and where do you think they're going? So right now they're holding flat, or holding firm at around 6.5%. That's across all property types um, and relatively stable amongst all of them in there as well. This is putting us back to pre-pandemic levels, which is nice because we had that drop off. Um, I think you are going to see them increase slightly more, but forget the days of 7, 8, 9%. They're, they're, they're done Emirate-wise. You might find those values in International 70, Discovery Gardens, but they're going to be limited. I think you'll see them climb up a little bit more, but ultimately start to plateau. And you've got a lot of this inventory coming on. All those people beginning eviction notices now. First thing my advice would be is question the validity of it, what the purpose is for, and make sure that it's followed through with. There's going to be a whole lot of people coming to the market then. We don't know where the market's going to be. Some of those would-be sellers might actually go, you know what, stay on because there's not a buyer demand that's there. Um, that's where I think we've really got to start to monitor as well. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Very pleased to be speaking to Jean Jahinki, CEO of Property Monitor, uh, who's come in with their latest report. That's going to be released a little bit later today, but we've had a sneak preview this morning. Uh, house prices are rising 2% in the last month here in Dubai. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. World leaders getting ready to impose a price cap on Russian energy. Discussions well underway. But what will it actually mean for supply and the price the world pays? Very pleased to be joined by Justin Dargan, global energy expert at Carnegie Endowments. Uh, Justin, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Right. So G7 leaders and the European Union uh, trying to agree on a price cap for Russian energy. Where are we now in negotiations? Well, one of the principal issues is that there has been a lack of consensus uh, because there is a dispute about where exactly the price uh, cap should be. So, for instance, you have some countries which are 
more, uh, let's say, anti-Russian to a certain degree and want to penalize Russia much more, such as Poland, Lithuania, and Estonia. And they feel that uh, the price cap that should be uh, deployed should be around $30 or so. Uh, the current discussion is around uh, $65 to $70. That's where currently we're at. But uh, Poland and uh, Lithuania, Estonia, they want to go much lower uh, because the reason for that is they say that you really have to cut Russia to the bone in terms of its financial reserves and the technical cost of production for Russian oil is roughly about $20, although some fields can go as high as $75 uh, per barrel. Uh, so you have that. And then you also have another faction, uh, which is more or less uh, promoted by, uh, I would say, uh, Malta, Cyprus, and Greece, which, of course, uh, have the majority of the shipping uh, uh, companies uh, in the EU. And they think that that price level is actually uh, much too low. And they actually think that it should be a bit higher and they feel that they are going to uh, lose a significant amount of business. So they want to be compensated if uh, some price cap is deployed and they won't be able to obtain the regular business. So uh, this is where we're at at the moment, but we do expect that potentially there should be some type of consensus coming you know, within the next few days or so, perhaps even tomorrow. What does a price cap of 65 to $70 actually mean for Russia? I mean, taking politics out of it, but the reason that a price cap has been proposed is to try and cut the amount of money that Russia can make from its energy. And if, as you say, uh, that is multiples of what it actually costs Russia to get energy out of the ground, would it have any effect? Uh, yeah, well, there are actually uh, two issues that need to be considered. Uh, one is the break-even price, the technical break-even price, which is the cost uh, or the price of a barrel of oil that Russia needs to uh, acquire in order to uh, continue producing from a particular reservoir. So that's one uh, break-even price. Then you have another break-even price, which is the fiscal break-even price. And that is the price of a barrel of oil that Russia needs to acquire in order to maintain budgetary solvency. So to uh, continue to operate its its economy and to pay its debts and so on and so forth. So if you have a price cap from between uh, 65 to $70, let's say, uh, Russia is already selling its oil at a heavy discount. Uh, so about $67 or so, give or take. Uh, so really, uh, at the moment, if you have a price cap at that level, it's not going to have a significant impact upon Russia. And at the same time, though, this price cap was... Uh, developed or proposed in order to, uh, how can I say, to uh, create a type of safety valve uh, because the European uh, import ban is going to come into effect December 5th. And the European Union was afraid that uh, with uh, the implementation uh, of the ban that there's going to be a relatively high price spike. And this is something, of course, that the world doesn't need, Europe doesn't need with the high inflationary pressure and uh, also the slowdown in the global economy. So when you uh, institute a price cap, this actually creates a type of safety valve because Europe still wants the oil to go to the international market without creating a price, a price spike while reducing the amount of revenue that Russia would be able to acquire. OK, so in theory, what would a price cap of around $65 mean for the global energy picture? Well, I mean, what's happening right now is that uh, potentially Russia is able to still ship in, the, let's say, in light of any type of price cap to still ship uh, uh, or to skirt, let's say, European uh, price caps or the G7 price cap by potentially by about 70 to 80 percent, because you do have a significant uh, global shadow fleet, shadow fleet uh, that has been uh, uh, 
established uh, over the past uh, several decades or so that have uh, helped uh, certain countries uh, evade uh, maritime uh, shipping bans, such as Venezuela and so on. Uh, so it is uh, completely possible that Russia would be able to continue to ship its oil. But we do see a lot of trade already migrating to the east. So we see, of course, India uh, acquired a lot of Russian uh, crude, and then we also see China, of course. I mean, so that's one of the major issues that we're seeing. So fundamentally, in terms uh, for the Russian economy at the moment, if you have a price cap that is set at the level of the price that it is currently selling its crude for at discount, it's not going to have a major uh, impact. But at the same time, when you have this European ban coming into effect, Russia really has to make certain that uh, to wherever it ships its oil, these countries will be able to absorb it. And it doesn't look like China at the moment is uh, offering any type of relief from its uh, extremely strict uh, COVID policies. And even it had the highest number of uh, COVID uh, infections, I think, during the entire pandemic, and it happened uh, quite recently. So it seems like Chinese demand would still be relatively low. I was looking at the Moscow Times this morning. There's um, warnings of, of consequences for a price cap. What could that look like? Will we actually see Russia um, halting supply? Well, actually, uh, Russia has threatened uh, to... Uh, let's say, retaliate against uh, any countries that uh, adhere to the price cap. Uh, but it doesn't look like uh, any countries outside uh, of the G7, outside of the European Union and the West, of course, uh, would adhere to it. But actually, they don't really have to adhere to any price cap, given the fact that they are able to negotiate much lower prices. And that's more or less uh, what uh, the European Union desires in a G7, is they actually want to empower uh, many of uh, Russia's uh, traditional buyers to negotiate lower prices, even if they don't necessarily adhere uh, to the price cap. Uh, but Russia has threatened, of course, uh, to shut off uh, gas exports. Uh, so we have seen uh, reductions, of course, in gas, which is uh, transported uh, through uh, uh, Nord Stream 1. And then also there have been reductions in uh, gas uh, shipments uh, through uh, Ukraine at the same time. I mean, so potentially uh, Russia could pull the trigger and uh, uh, let's say, implement a full uh, gas shutoff. Uh, of course, it wouldn't do itself any favors economically, uh, but if it seeks retaliation, uh, then it could potentially do that. Right. Well, let's look at the demand side of the equation. You've mentioned China's rising uh, COVID numbers there. I was also looking um, at the gasoline builds in the US, suggesting people might be driving less over Thanksgiving. What does the demand picture look like? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right, Brady. Uh, so we do have a, a quite uh, surprising uh, increase in the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, stockpile, gasoline stockpile. So I believe it increased by about 3.1 million barrels or so. So that's something which uh, was a bit unexpected. And of course, you have uh, somewhat of the global re uh, recessionary uh, pressure, uh, which is building. And of course, as you indicated, uh, China. At the same time, though, we really have to see what's going to happen come December 5th. I mean, so that's really going to be uh, the major, uh, let's say, date of where uh, the confusion that is ongoing in the international oil market is going to sort itself out. And actually, I would say uh, February 5th is when the EU oil products ban comes into effect. And I think that potentially could even have more of a negative economic impact upon the EU in the sense of European imports of uh, diesel, which still a large uh, percentage of the European transport uh, sector uh, runs on diesel and also the agricultural sector and so on and so forth. I mean, so we might see uh, extremely difficult economic situation developing from the embargo, which is going to be uh, implemented on February 5th as well. well. Thanks so much for joining us this morning live from Washington. Justin Dargan, global energy expert uh, with the Carnegie Endowment Fund.
You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.